All right, well turn with me there to Numbers chapter 22. This section of scripture is full of irony and humor. It is Balaam and his donkey and King Balak, who is trying to seduce the children of Israel. And what we're gonna find here is that a dumb prophet is going to be instructed by a wise donkey. Um, and that that's pretty much sums up what's going on, and that's why I say it is full of irony. You'll, you'll laugh, you'll chuckle as we read this. But you know what else we're gonna see in this besides some irony and some kind of you know, interesting humor? We're gonna see the tactics of our enemy. We're gonna see how Satan tries to seduce and how he tries to lead us astray. And we're gonna see, we're gonna see three different ways in which he tries to do this. And we'll make note of those. Um, the good thing about fighting our enemy is he, um, he uses the same tactics. And so we are not ignorant of his devices. We are wise to how he seeks to function. Now, we gotta walk in the wisdom of it. We've gotta walk in what we know. We've gotta walk in the truth of the scripture. And may the Lord give us the grace to do that. So let's go ahead and look there at chapter 22. Um, we're gonna see that Balaam is hired by a foolish king and he will be rebuked by a discerning donkey. Um, more so than this, this well-known prophet. Okay, so up there on the screen you have this map and this is, you know, as it's being written, we're gonna go from mountaintop to mountaintop. So starting down in the bottom um, of the screen, kind of towards the Dead Sea. So that body of waters uh, is the top of it would be north, to the right would be east, and that one city over there uh, that's first listed is um, Bamoth Baal. And then as you go up further, you come up to Mount Nebo, right by Mount Pisgah, which we're gonna read about. Going a little bit further, you're gonna have Beth Peor. And if you come down off the mountains of Moab, and you come down into the plain, the Jordan plain, you come to Abel Shatim. And so we're gonna talk about that. Some of our uh, translations may say the Acacia Grove. As you go, as you keep heading west, you can kind of see the Jordan River that cuts down through there, um, that rift, and that's where the Jordan River would be. And as you come up onto the west side, heading towards Jerusalem, you have Jericho that is also in this plain. So you have the Mount, you have the Judean mountains, you have the, the, the mountains of Moab, you have this plain, and you have uh, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, and the Jordan River going between the two. But all of what we're gonna read about is gonna happen over in what we, is today modern Jordan. And so um, we'll show you this again, but he's, he's gonna start out looking for at the children of Israel and uh, prophesying over them, starting in the south, and he's gonna move to the north, and you can see that each time he gets closer to uh, Shatim, which is where the children of Israel are encamped. So you can see why uh, the nations are getting a little fearful, because they're about to, when they, when they cross over uh, the Jordan River, they're into the Promised Land. So they're, they're almost within shouting distance of Jericho. I mean, it's still a little bit of a trek, but it, it's close. So let's go ahead and uh, begin reading there at verse one of chapter 22. It says, then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, 
saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So back up into chapter 21, you'll find out the victory they had there. But he sees this victory. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because there were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him saying, look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are setting, settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Uh, by the way, the, when it says the, by the river, um, there in verse 5, the river, that's the river Euphrates, so that's heading even further east. So the elders, verse seven of Moab, and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of, ba of Balak. So as they, as they come, they are fearful, and they recognize we could fight them. That's one tactic of the enemy. We could fight them, but they immediately dismiss that, and they say, there is no way. After what they just did to the Amorites, the number of them, we don't stand a chance on the open battlefield, so they're going to look for another tactic. And the tactic is to have Balaam, this, this seer um, that's well known um, for pronouncing blessings and cursings to come and do that. And so maybe they'll get sick. Maybe a plague will break out upon these people. Uh, maybe they'll, they'll get confused. And then, then they could attack them. So that's kind of the, the plan of what is going on here. But let's keep on reading uh, there in verse 8. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring... Uh, no, verse seven. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God, to ba God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go. That's pretty simple, isn't it? You shall not go. You don't need to know anything. You don't have to have a high degree of understanding of any language to be able to understand those words. You shall not go. Um, but what we're going to see happen is that Balaam's going to very cleverly, he thinks he's being clever, try to negotiate this. And he's going to try to ask to go and to change and persuade uh, the Lord to have him go. Um, and eventually it's going to come out in the text and it just flat out says that. But as you read it, um, 
we don't see some of the, the, the cleverness uh, and the nuances of what he is trying to do. But just understand the, what the Lord is saying. Verse 12, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. <clears throat> and the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So Balaam is sought for hire, and um, he's well-known. He's not from that area. He's, he's going further east. And here's the interesting thing. This, this is a, a, um, an image of plaster that they found on a building um, in Jordan. And they found it, it's uh, dated to 840 to 760 B.C. Now, what we're reading about in Numbers 22 is right around 1446 B.C. So it, it is sometime after uh, the life of uh, Balaam. But what they found is his name written on here, on this, this building. Some would say a temple. I think there's a little bit of debate as to actually what the building was. But um, his name is actually mentioned in this fragment. So he was a well-known person, not just to Balak, but uh, down through history. And so um, in this, um, he, you, you see that he's given a title that, that on that fragment that he's a seer of the gods. Um, and so he has an association with these, these different local gods. Um, Ashtar, one name you might be familiar with, with the god Chemosh. Um, and um, they're, they're, asked, they're, they're referring to this, and it's a time of famine and difficulty, and they're, they're looking for help. So that's kind of what's on that fragment. Um, I think these types of uh, archaeological discoveries are, are really fascinating. Um, but I tell you what they aren't. They are not that which establishes the word of God. They're just interesting. And, you know, as certain as you find this, and um, you could, and, and I, always, I like to put these things just in the answer. This is interesting. Because you know what, I mean, you can find something out in 10 years from now, oh yeah, this was something that was a fake and somebody wrote this down to try and, you know, um, show that the Bible was true. Okay, so that ends up coming out. And, and if you built your faith upon archaeological discoveries, then, then your faith crumbles. So we're not going to build our faith upon archaeological discoveries. But, they, but there's, there's thousands of archaeological discoveries that teach us and show us like this that, that we're reading here in Numbers chapter 22 about a, about a man whose name is Balaam and he's a seer and he's well known. And yet we find this discovery that he was so well known that on a, the walls of a temple quite possibly there's a, um, fragments of writing that speak of him and what he saw and what he was doing. So it shows us that the Bible's not writing about fairy tale things, right? It's real cities. That's why I showed you the map. They're real cities, they're real places. Um, you find some extra biblical, that's what this would be, extra biblical material that says this guy, he really existed and exactly what he is known for in this document or this, this writing is exactly what we read in numbers. So I find these things interesting. I find them encouraging and, and exciting, but it does not establish the veracity of God's word. God's word um, does not need anything to make it um, stand on its own two feet. But when we find them, they are, um, they are encouraging things, especially when they are, they are so old. So 
on a building dated from 840 to 760 BC. There is uh, this writing some, I don't know, 600 years after uh, the event we're reading about. As we move on in verse 15, still in chapter 22, we'll take it down to verse 21. And Balaam is told not to go with these men, uh, but he's going to give in to his pleading. So I'm saying that he's going to give in to his pleading. Um, but you've got to look down a little further. So just, just to get the, have it in your mind, look at verse 22 of chapter 22. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his hand, uh, took, took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. So we know quite clear, clearly here that the Lord was angry with him because he went. So he's not happy with them. So we're going to hear this kind of negotiation that goes on. But God said, don't go. And then when he went, God got angry at him. But let's read verse 15. Then Balak sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, please... You also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And there's the error, isn't it? Why is he asking again? God has already given the answer. And what is the answer? <laughs> no, you shall not go. And so here's this really wise guy that can't understand a very simple sentence. Stay home. So he comes back and he asks the Lord again. Verse 20, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused. So you're like, well, but he said go. Well, here's the thing. Here's the lesson for us. Just because you are able to wear God down, if you will, and get what you want, it does not mean it's going to be the best thing. Do you remember the whole scene with the quail? Where they're like, oh, we got to have meat, we got to have meat. And the Lord goes, you want meat? Okay, I'll give you meat. And he gave them so much meat, it says it was coming out of their nostrils. And it, I mean, this stuff made them sick. They were puking quail out their nostrils. Okay? So they got what they wanted, but it really was not the blessing. And, and I think there's a, there's a powerful lesson for us in here. We have... The word of the Lord. Here it is, right here. You got the Bible. You know, when somebody says, when you go to a friend or you talk to somebody and you're just like, hey, this relationship you're in or this decision you're making, you know, or the, the way you're acting or the way you spoke, you know, this is sinful and, and here's the scripture verses. And they say, well, you know, well, I'm just going to pray about it. You're going to pray about it? What are you going to pray? Lord, change your Bible? I mean, wh what are you going to actually pray and so people will go away and say, well, you know, I prayed about it and I feel very good about the, what, the way I'm living, the way I'm thinking. But what about the word of the Lord? Well, I don't know. I just know that God's told me this. No, he has not told you. And if he has told you, oh my, that is not good news. That is not good news. I mean, because 
He's not gonna break his word. So if you are forcing your way and you feel like you've been told you can go, you know what's actually happening? You're being set up for a chastening. You're being set up. So you can whine and complain and you can get it, but you're not gonna like it. It's not gonna satisfy. The, the thing is when the Lord speaks, it's over. So listen, I, I just, I'll just, this is not scripture, okay? But I think it is good parenting information. Um, so uh, my parents never counted to three for me. And uh, so, okay, so I'm just gonna keep, I'm just gonna look straight ahead right there. So I'm not gonna look out at anybody. So my parents never counted to three. And I can remember this conversation and I, I, I was third grade, uh, somewhere between four years old and third grade. I don't remember. I just know that it was, it was that, it's where we lived at this time. And I was doing something. It's like the only time I ever did something. But I was doing something that was uh, irritating my parents and they didn't like it. And, um, and, and I think what it was, was that we were, my dad worked for Hertz and I think we were out on the, the lot and um, he called me and I didn't respond. I got in trouble. And, um, and my, I remember my mom saying something like, hey, you know, you could have like warned him or you could have said something. You kind of came down on him quickly. And he says, I'm not going to do that because there may be a day when I don't have a, it might be a circumstance where I, he doesn't have a second chance to listen. I remember as a little boy sitting in the back of the car going, that's pretty smart right there, you know? I, I mean, I can, I can remember this. And um, that profound moment on, on me as a little boy uh, carried over into how um, we raised our children. So they didn't get three. Um, you know, it's not that we didn't, we didn't always just yank up on them. I mean, we would talk to them and we would talk about what they should do and not do and, 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 and all that. But, but, you know, the one thing that Rebecca used to say uh, all the time to our kids is first time obedience. All the time. It's first time obedience. We obey the first time he speaks to us and the first time we ask you to do something, we expect you to be obedient. And, and this is Balaam's problem. It's not first time obedience for him. And so um, he has aroused the anger of the Lord. So if, the, if you are walking in something right now that you feel like God has affirmed for you, but it's clearly spoken against in the word of God, I hope you're in panic mode right now. I hope you're feeling very uncomfortable because God is not going to change his word. He expects all of us to be obedient to him, first time obedience. So the best way is to quickly obey the Lord and completely obey the Lord when he speaks. So we keep on reading here, verse 22, the anger of the Lord gets aroused, verse 23. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. You know, each of these were moments that if the wise seer would have been discerning enough, could have known the Lord is standing against me. 
So, but he wasn't, he's not, he's not. He's, he's the dumb prophet um, is what he is. And verse 27, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and she just went down on the ground, right? She lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with the staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, a smart person would have been like, oh my goodness, I, that, that donkey just spoke to me. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what a smart person would do. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me. <laughs> I mean, it's, this is really, uh, it's embarrassing for the poor guy. I wish there were a sword in my hand for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Come now, let us read this together, right? I, uh, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, well, you got a good point, no. <laughs> then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with, his sword, with the drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, <coughs> why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Wow. The Lord sees what he is up to. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now. And let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Really? If? That is the, did you mean to like say if? I mean, shouldn't have read something like, say no more. I'm doing a U-turn, and I am going back and nothing will persuade me otherwise. That's what should have, but you can see the same persistence. Still kind of, yeah, the, you know, okay, I see the problem here, but still leaning into what the Lord clearly does not like. He said no, it angered him, he called it a perverse uh, trip that he is on. And so, um, you know, he doesn't get it. Verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to him, Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that, shall, um, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border at the Arnon, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, look, I have come to you now. Now have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Well, that's, that's, that's good right there. That's smart. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirjath Huzoth. Then Balak offered ox, oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes were with him. Verse 41, so it was the next day Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, uh, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. So 
he has this interesting thing. And people will say, well, listen, I don't know. I don't know, this is donkey speaking. This just seems, this seems pretty amazing. I, I'll do you one better. It's a miracle. It's not simply amazing. It's a miracle that God would have this donkey speak and speak his word. There's a couple of lessons for us to draw from this. Um, we've already talked about one. But the other one is this. And then we can, take, we can look at this one of two ways. Um, many people will dismiss themselves from service to the Lord because they feel like they are not trained enough, they're not educated enough, they're not gifted enough, uh, they don't have enough experience enough to be used of the Lord. But this little donkey teaches us another lesson, doesn't it? She never had spoken before. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. Okay? <laughs> Call me courageous. I don't know. But she's never spoken before. She had never prophesied before. She had never done anything like this before. Um, and, and yet, when the Lord wants to use a vessel, it doesn't matter if it's a, a wise prophet, a well-known prophet um, like Balaam, or it's a dumb donkey. And God says he would rather use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise than to use the noble things of the world. So if you are sitting here or listening to this tonight and you have dismissed yourself from service to the Lord because you don't have what it takes, I just want to ask you, do you think you have just a little bit more capability than a donkey? I think everyone would say yes. And if you say, well, I don't know, well, then we'll just put you as equal to a donkey and still God can use you. Don't dismiss yourself from service to the Lord because of what your experiences are or aren't, what you know or what you don't know, if the Lord calls you and he puts his hand upon you, walk in it. Now, let's flip the coin over. Don't start to feel real proud of yourself because the Lord is using you. Because he uses donkeys. And he uses us. So it should bring a, a, a sense of humility to know that whatever God does through me that is good and beneficial... It is him. He can use any kind of vessel he wants to, even a donkey. And so he uses us. Well, as we move into chapter 23, Balaam is going to begin to speak words of blessing. There's going to be four different blessings that he speaks over them. So again, there's this uh, the, the mountain ridge, and I realize it's hard to read. I should, have, I should have taken some time and put some black font on there, although it would have taken... A little bit of doing because this is just a screenshot. But um, again, to the right, you have Bamoth Baal, and this is where we find him in chapter 23. You have Pisgah, Beth Peor, and Shatim. Again, if we could pull up the next slide, again, there's just kind of that like a satellite picture. He is in that further, furthest most part. So he's going to come up here and he's going to look at the children of Israel. So as you can imagine, um, the further distance mountain ridges and just distance itself is going to make it a little difficult but as he gets closer he gets to see more and more it's not going to change what God has to say um, or what he want, God wants him to do but Balak seems to be convinced if you could just get a different angle you could probably find it in your heart to curse them um, so chapter 23 then Balaam said to Balak build seven altars for me here and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. <clears throat> and Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and, Balak, and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. 
Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height and God met Balaam and he said to him, I have prepared seven altars and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak (coughs) and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him and there he was standing by his burnt offering and all the princes of Moab. So they're all sitting there waiting for this terrible curse that's going to cripple this massive army that's in front of him. But look at what he says. He took up an oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. (coughs) How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce him whom the Lord has not denounced? (coughs) From the top of the rocks, I see him. And from the hills, I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. So it seems like when he's talking, he says, from the top of the rocks, I see him. And now the question is, is he talking about the Lord or is he talking about uh, Israel? Now, if he's from this distance, that long distance away, how could he possibly see him? And if it is a reference to the Lord, he sees the pillar of fire and he sees the cloud by day. So as he's up on the mountain, he looks down on the camp of Israel and there he sees the manifested presence of God in the camp. And he says, this is a huge number of people. Now he says, can you, they're like the dust of Jacob. I mean, they're, they're so Can you count dust? That's how many there is in Jacob. I can't even count a fourth of them. There are many liberal scholars that will say that um, the amount of people that left from Egypt was a small company, and over time, um, legend was written. It became a part of the Bible, and it really was just a small handful of people that left, and that's about it. And, And yet, when we read here, The fear of Balak is, I can't fight them. And when Balaam sees them, he's like, man, it's like counting dust to try and number these people. I don't think I could even count a quarter of these people. So this is a massive group of people. So the idea that this is a group of millions is not not a strange thing, certainly from the text of Scripture. And so, you know, scripture says this, others will say, well, there's no way. But it's like, you live in like 2023. I mean, why should I believe you? You weren't there. I mean, we got accounts of people that were there. And this is what they're saying. But yet, you who live in 2023 are going to say, they don't know what they're talking about, who saw that? Mm, I think I'm going to believe them, not you. And I'm going to rely upon the word of the Lord. But this, this is a great Um, seen here and this is actually it's a promise that God had given to Abraham isn't it God had told Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the heaven or like the sand of the sea and here it is coming into the promised land they are a group of people that um, cannot be numbered and so this is the scene that we are we're reading about Um, 
we come to the second prophecy. And he doesn't curse them, of course. He can't curse them because God has blessed them. <coughs> Verse 13, then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them and shall not see them all, uh, see them all, curse them for me from there. So he's just like, let's try a different place. So they go to uh, verse 14, Pisgah. Same thing, they build the seven altars. And then verse 18, we pick up the prophecy. Then he took up his oracle and said to, and said, rise up Balak and hear, listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son a man that he should repent. <coughs> he says some pretty good stuff. Even though he's a, a prophet that is not going to be spoken well of. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. So let me pause here, and I don't want to get off into this. But if that is true against the children of Israel, don't you think that's true for us as those who are in Christ Jesus? You know, I just, I'm not going to do a study on this, um, and I can refer you to some stuff if it's a question, but I'm just going to say, Jesus took the curse and he hung on the tree. And um, this idea of generational curses, it is not, you're not going to find it. In the, in the, you, there's only one place you can find it, and this has to do with continued disobedience from generation to generation, not some kind of sorcery that's like hanging over a group of people of which they have no power or control. That's, that's not it. And it's the only place. Um, and it's such a, a strange passage that people use. But, you know, people say, well, I just, I feel like there's, there's, you know, curses in my family or curses upon my people. There's a witch and she put a curse on me. And um, my, my answer is always the same. is well, Jesus took the curse. He, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. This is what we read in Galatians. So I, I just want to tell you and, and just for you to see it yourself here, if the children of Israel um, can have no sorcery against them or any div divination against them, how much more us who are in Christ Jesus? There's no weapon formed against you that's going to prosper. And so um, I think, though, there's a lot of times there's almost, <laughs> um, there's almost we're enamored with the darkness. It's like we're, we're you know, we're kind of like, we're really interested in this darkness and this curse and stuff. And it's like you end up getting caught up in it and then something happens and then it begins to play. Listen, you got to have a verse for what you believe. And here's your verse. There's the, you know, so I, I do not believe in generational curses. Now, if you're outside of Christ, watch out. There you can be open to all kinds of trouble and all kinds of wickedness and darkness. Now, can the enemy attack you and oppress you is there spiritual, spiritual warfare? Yes. Can Satan demonize you or can he possess a believer? Well, Paul answers this. Can light and darkness dwell together in the same temple? The answer is no. 
Can Christ and Belial dwell together? No. So if you are the temple of the living God and Christ dwells in you, then does Christ scoot over to accept the curse and the darkness or that demon into your life? No, he doesn't do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I know this is a whole lot, and there's, this, is, this is becoming, there's a resurgence of this whole stuff going on in the church. And um, I just will challenge you to, to look to Scripture. And it's like, well, you know, I believe that, you know, Christians can be demon-possessed or this can happen. Okay, give me one verse. And give me one example of it. Or give me one example of it. Or give me one like one line of teaching of what the church should do when they find a Christian who is demon-possessed. Now go look and do a thorough search, but I know exactly what you're going to find. You're not going to find anything. It's not there. What you can find is a whole lot of people talking about their experiences. Well, I had this experience, and this thing happened, and that thing happened. Okay. All right. I agree that there are experiences out there, but where do you want to draw the line with experiences without scripture? Where do you, where, how far are you willing to go? Because you know what? There's a lot of cults that have experiences and they don't have any scripture to back it up. So, I mean, how far do you want to go with this? There must be the word of the Lord. But here, here it is. Verse 23, for there's no sorcery against Jacob nor any divination against Israel. And so I would say if that is true for them, how much more true for us who are in Christ Jesus where Jesus died on the tree, took the curse for us. Verse 24, look at, uh, look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Sorry, Balak, not good stuff. You're, you're the prey, they're the lion, they're going to devour you. Then Balak said to him, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Just be quiet. If you don't have anything bad to say, don't say anything at all. Kind of the very opposite of what your mom used to teach you. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, did I not tell you saying all that the Lord speaks that I must do? Again, he says it again. And this is such a, this is such a, a good thing that, um, that he is speaking. Um, Verse 27, then Balak said to Balaam, please come, I will take you to another place. Um, so, you know, th th this place is not working. We're going to find a place where you really feel angry and you can curse. Okay. So um, he brings them over. Uh, chapter 23, um, verses 13 through 26, Balaam blesses the people that second time. Now in verse 27, he moves to the third mountaintop, and the third mountaintop is the one that's closest. Closest is Beth Peor, that's the lower arrow, so um, the bottom of the screen is east, going to the top of the screen is west, to the right is north, to the south, well, you got it, the south. So, the, so he's on the eastern mountain of uh, the Jordan and he's looking down upon them in this area and so now he's got a really good vantage point to see them and um, so he's like this is this this one this will be my lucky curse mountain so chapter 24 um, he's Balaam is going to issue two more prophetic words of blessing now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. So, 
So now he can actually see, like, oh, there's one tribe, oh, there's another tribe. He can actually see that, that layout that we read about earlier in Numbers. Then he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor. The utterance of the man whose eyes are opened. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength (coughs) like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Sorry, Balak, still bad news for you. So Balak is just so, he's just so angry. And, um, you know, so they go back and forth. He says, I told you, I can only say what the Lord told me to say. Now, here's the most interesting of them all. Now, this guy, in these divination, it's sorcery. He disobeys the Lord. He's a conniver. He's a schemer. He's after money. We're going to read about this in just a moment. And this guy is going to give a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? That somebody like that is speaking the word of the Lord. You know, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. And I think Balaam falls into that category. It's, a, it's you know, it, it's, it's troubling to our minds, and I don't have a great explanation, but here it is. You're reading it along with me. So the fourth prophecy, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the word of, uh, words of God and has knowledge of the Most High who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, speaking of Jesus here, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. (coughs) And so it just continues. He begins to speak against all these different nations. So verse 25 of 20, chapter 24, so Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place and Balak also went his way. So David partially fulfilled this as he, um, you know, fulfilled victory and conquered the land. Second Samuel chapter eight, you could read and see some of the, the, the lineup of the victories. But this is a prophecy that really goes out to the days of the Lord which takes us out to the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
when he returns. I, I know that there are different views and some will say that you know, they believe that we're in the millennial kingdom right now or there is no literal millennial kingdom. I believe that the millennial kingdom will come after the second coming of Christ and the Lord will rule and reign upon the earth. And th these types of prophecies right here, it talks about, I mean, it talks about Jesus having victory over these nations. When did Jesus do that? And um, again, some will say, well, you know, this is, don't take it literally. But I believe that if literal sense makes sense, then you should take it. I guarantee you Balak took it literally. <laughs> he wasn't thinking, well, at least it's a metaphor. No, it was going to be real. And he was going to be destroyed. And, um, and that's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Read in Revelation. Read Revelation 19.11 through chapter 20, verse 6. And what the Lord is going to do. So this is a prophecy that he makes. Now, Revelation 22.16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning, what? Star. Now, here's something that's, here's, here's some speculation, all right? So, you know, this is some interesting things to consider. Um, so there in Shittim, there is this prophecy um, um, over the, the nation of Israel. And, and Balaam is up at Beth uh, Peor, and he's prophesying. It's called, you know, this star prophecy. There's going to be a scepter. There's going to be a star that comes. And he, he's coming. He's not now, but he's going to come. So there is a possible um, route that the Magi's took that would have took, took them right through this area. Now, we, we don't know exactly which way. We know that they came from the east, okay? And we know that they would have been on the king's highway. Now, did they, when they're coming from the east, did they stay north and come to uh, the western side of the Jordan and drop down and come through um, that way? Or did they take the king's highway down? And that's what that red line is illustrating. They took the king's highway down. And then when they got to Heshbon, um, they, they hung a right. And they came through Beth Peor, and they would have come down through Shittim, and they would have crossed over, and they would have made their way up into Jerusalem and to Bethlehem. Well, why did these wise guys come? Well, wise men come? Well, they came because they had seen his star in the east. Isn't that interesting? A prophet of the east talks about this. And they, they come. They come to Jerusalem. They make it all the way down to Bethlehem. Now, we know when they... When, they left, they left a different way. So whether they came in this way or went out that way, we can't say for certain, but it is interesting to think that these guys coming to see the one who was born a king because they had seen a star in the east pass right by the place where that prophecy of that, that one who would be a star that would be that king of Israel. It's just, just interesting. I wonder, you know, if they pass by here, the Lord's like, yep, I knew that would happen. I knew they were going to come right by here. And... Um, and now he has actually come. The time was no longer um, off in the distance. The time was now when, when they came. So, all right. So it seems as you finish chapter 24, it seems like it's like, all right, okay. Things kind of, we're all right. But it's not all right. In chapter 25, and I'm, I'm going to have to condense this chapter. But in chapter 25, um, Balak ends up sending some of the ladies of, of uh, the camp um, down into Shittim, where the children of Israel were, were uh, camped. And they came, they were prostitutes, and they were seducing them into the worship of their fertility gods and goddesses. And, and it works. So 
Balak sees the people, he's like, let's fight them. No, they just beat up the Amorites really, really bad, and there's too many of them. We can't fight them. And I think the enemy looks at the church and says, you know, hand-to-hand combat. And he's like, no, no, we can't do that because uh, the gates of hell will not prevail. So he's like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's try to bring some kind of uh, sorcery. Let's bring something that's going to weaken them. And, you know, but there's no weapon formed against us that's going to prosper. And then the enemy says, I'll compromise them. I will get them to fall into sin. And that will put them in a compromised place in their relationship with the Lord. And that's when I can lay into them. And that's when trouble is going to come. And I think I mentioned there's three ways in which he comes. And, and, and I think it's this last one that, that really is where the enemy works. That's, this is his, that's his shop is in trying to seduce us. And so he sends a compromise in their midst um, through these uh, prostitutes who are part of the worship of the, the god uh, Baal of Peor. And they go down, they end up uh, falling into this trap and um, there ends up being a plague that ends up killing 24,000 of them. So this is, this is a, a real problem. Phineas. Uh, rises up, verse 7, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the high priest, and he ends up killing some of them. And then we read in verse 8, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. And so, quite a problem. So, where did Balak get this idea? Well, if we read ahead, Numbers 31, 16 says, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of who? Balaam. To trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation. So we don't read it in the actual account here, but we find it later that he's the one. So he never cursed them. He only blessed them. But it sounds like on the way out, hey, by the way, I'm not going to curse them, but you know, if you could seduce them to worship your gods, you probably could put them in a place where God would do something against them. Revelation 2.14 says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. It's interesting. In Jude 1.11, it speaks about the greed of Balaam and being watching out for false teachers. In 2 Peter 2.15, it talks about how false teachers love their wages like Balaam loved his wages. So later in Scripture, after the scene, we find out that You know, it looks like he comes out of this unscathed, but in reality, he gives bad counsel or he gives counsel that ended up leading Israel into sin. And and that's what we'll have to be um, worried about is we have to be worried about falling into temptation. You know, listen, I, I already talked about don't be worried about the curses. Don't be worried about demons. Okay, you're in Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, you know. Yes, we got warfare, and we gotta we gotta fight, and he can oppress, and he can he can give us a bad time. But he he is limited; he's not going to possess a believer. Curses are not going to have that impact upon us because Jesus he he took it all. But us giving into lust into temptation—that is how the enemy wins the day. 
That's how he gets a foothold in your life. This is how he gets there to be a chastening to come in your life from the hand of the Lord. This is how he does this. I, please know this. The enemy is not interested in your pleasure. He is not interested in you having a good time. His desire is, according to Jesus, is three things. To rob, to kill, and to destroy. That is his plan for your life. And we all would do much better if when the temptation comes, we would say, this is here to rob me, to kill me, and to destroy me. If we can have our eyes wide open, we're not ignorant to the devices of the enemy. And to not begin to say, well, Lord, if you really want me to not commit this sin, then I pray this would just go away, or I would not want it anymore. I would not desire, that's not going to happen. You've got to crucify the flesh. You've got to deny it. This is how we are told to fight. Now, Phineas stands out as a great example of how we are to conduct ourselves. Romans 12, 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Phineas was one zealous for truth. Now, listen, we're not going to go out and kill people, obviously. We're not under a theocracy where the Lord is giving instruction like that. To us, but we still must be zealous for holiness and purity. We need to make certain that we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. God hates evil. And so we live in a day where there is so much pressure to give in and to celebrate. You know, we're called intolerant, but don't be deceived. Tolerance and how they use that word is not how you think that word is being used. Tolerance does not mean allow me to go and do what I'm going to do and I'll allow you to go do what you're going to do and we'll just live with that as the idea of giving each other space. That's not tolerance today. Tolerance today is you must forsake what you believe and hold to be true and celebrate what I hold to believe to be true even if it will cause you to deny your faith. That's tolerance today. And so if you're going to try, if you're going to try and live up to the world standard of being tolerant, you're going to end up compromising. That's the bottom line. So, no, we stand for truth. We have the word of God. It doesn't change. Speak only the words that I speak. This is what Balaam was told. Now, he failed in that because he ended up giving counsel to lead them astray. So great lessons for us in here. God will fulfill his promises just like he did to Abraham. They were like the sand of the sea. Satan comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Be on guard of his seducing ways. Know how he works. And lastly, speak and believe only what the Lord says. If it's not in the word, if it's not there giving you know, guidance and direction in your spiritual life and, and somebody else brings other information, well, I think this is the way it is, and it disagrees with the word of God, let the word of God stand true and everything else fall around it. God's word's been around a lot longer than that blogger or, you know, social media person, okay? We have truth that's been given to us, and that's how we live our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness and your goodness towards us. We ask that you would make us wise and discerning that, Lord, we wouldn't push the limits when your word so clearly tells us what you require of us and how to live. And I just want to give you an opportunity. If you have pushed the limits and you have gone out 
into an area where you know God's word forbids and he has warned you against it, and yet it feels like things are going pretty good, but you know that you've crossed the line, then you need to come back. This is what the Lord calls us to do. This is what he asks. Don't be seduced by the enemy. Has he seduced you in some way? And thinking that going after and fulfilling your desires is what you really need to do. And that it's okay. Everybody, no, not everybody. Christians don't. Followers of Jesus Christ don't. We follow the Lord. We have a master. We have a Lord. We have a king. And we kneel to him. So whatever way in which compromise has been able to come into your mind that you've made it acceptable, be done with it tonight, lest the hand of the Lord bring his correction to you. He gives us space to repent. Run into that space right now and repent. We thank you, Lord, that you're kind and you're patient. Give us strength, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue praying.